From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Neil McKay was ruthless in both his personal and business dealings, and associates learned not to cross him. When a car bomb instantly killed his ex-wife, Muriel File, police knew McKay had planned her murder, but they could not find enough evidence to charge him with the crime. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. I have a special treat for you this week. My friend and fellow author and podcaster, Mary Ann Paul, and I are doing crossover podcasts. Mary Ann hosts the popular podcast, Real Ghost Chatter, and I am a guest on her podcast this week. In this episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier, I tell the story about the brutal murder of a woman in downtown Anchorage. Then, on Real Ghost Chatter, Marianne and I will discuss the ghost of this woman who reportedly haunts the Anchorage Cafe, which was once the site of her travel agency. Marianne and I also explore some other Anchorage hauntings. Listen to the end of this episode for more information on how to find Real Ghost Chatter with Marianne Paul. You can also find the address in the show notes for this episode. Neil McKay grew up in California, and shortly after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the Navy and became a Marine pilot and flight instructor. According to Marine records, McKay suffered severe injuries from a plane crash during the war, receiving back, shoulder, and head wounds, and requiring doctors to place a steel plate in his skull. McKay married his high school sweetheart, Barbara, and after the war, he enrolled in law school in California. Once he received his law degree, he and Barbara moved to Anchorage, where he took a job as vice president of the First National Bank of Anchorage. When McKay attended high school in California, he worked as a driver for a mortuary, and from what he saw, he believed he could make a fortune in the mortuary business. After he passed the Alaska bar exam, allowing him to practice law in the state, he opened a mortuary on 4th Avenue in Anchorage with his law office in the back. Before long, and in accordance with his plan, Neil McKay became a millionaire. After 25 years of marriage, Barbara McKay filed for divorce from Neil in 1965. Neil opposed the divorce and refused to sign a settlement agreement for three years until ordered to do so by a judge. 45-year-old Neil McKay did not remain alone for long. He soon married 33-year-old Muriel File. Muriel File was the daughter of a wealthy Anchorage couple who made their fortune in the Anchorage real estate market, and Muriel owned a successful travel agency in downtown Anchorage. Like McKay, Muriel had a temper, 
and the two often clashed. To make things worse, Neil suffered seizures and had severe headaches from the injuries he sustained in the plane accident in the war. To ease his pain, he took powerful painkillers, and the narcotics fueled his temper. In 1973, Neil and Muriel had a son they called Scotty. But two months after Scotty's birth, the couple separated. Their temper tantrums and wild accusations during their divorce proceedings provided a daily court drama where they accomplished little. The judge finally barred both Muriel and Neil from the property settlement hearings, saying the two had tied up the court system for months, and he felt it was time to bang their heads together and settle the divorce. In the final agreement, the judge awarded Muriel $757,000 plus $500 a month for Scotty's support. Neil McKay fumed over the divorce settlement, and Muriel's attempts to keep him away from Scotty infuriated him. Muriel tried to convince the judge to suspend Neil's visitation rights altogether with Scotty, claiming Neil abused drugs and had an explosive temper. The judge limited Neil's time with Scotty to a partial weekend per month, and the ruling enraged and depressed McKay, who genuinely seemed to love his son. McKay tried to have his visitation rights expanded, but Muriel fought him at every turn. On the afternoon of September 30, 1976, when Scotty was only three years old, Muriel File left her travel agency, unlocked her Volvo, and died instantly when her car exploded. Explosive experts determined someone had placed a powerful charge underneath the hood of her car. Witnesses to the explosion said the hood blasted a hundred feet into the air, and shock waves shook the ground and shattered windows in the buildings near the parking lot. Police detectives quickly concluded the bomb was detonated by a remote device suggesting someone with a detonator watched the car until Muriel got inside, and then he or she pushed the button to ignite the bomb. It is terrifying to note that Muriel drove Scotty to a babysitter's house only 90 minutes before the explosion, and experts determined the device must have already been in the car at the time. Because of the animosity between Neil McKay and Muriel File, McKay became the immediate focus of the police investigation, but they could find nothing tying him to the murder. The Anchorage Police, Alaska State Troopers, and the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms all worked the case. Investigators sent pieces of Muriel's car to the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C., but analysts found no useful evidence. Police could not solve the murder of Muriel File, but Muriel's brother, Bob File, a senior pilot for Alaska Airlines, believed he knew who killed his sister and he was determined to honor his sister's wishes and not allow Neil McKay to gain custody of Scotty. McKay petitioned the court for full custody of Scotty, but Bob File hired attorneys to fight the petition. 
Vile offered a $20,000 reward to anyone with information on the murder of his sister, but no one came forward to claim the money. In December 1977, McKay took Scotty to Micronesia and left him there with friends. Police arrested McKay when he returned to Honolulu, but he refused to divulge Scotty's whereabouts. Despite this bizarre behavior, McKay won full custody of Scotty in 1978, and he immediately moved from Anchorage to Honolulu, where Scotty joined him. Bob File was the administrator of Muriel's estate, and Scotty was her only beneficiary. McKay felt File had inappropriately used money from Muriel's estate, and he even believed File had used Muriel's money to hire a private detective to locate Scotty in Micronesia. McKay thought File was stealing from Scotty, and the idea angered him. McKay became a recluse in his penthouse on Waikiki and reportedly spent his hours obsessed with his battle with Bob Vile. On October 12, 1985, only 38 days after Bob Vile won the court battle with McKay over expenditures from Muriel's estate, Bob Vile was driving home from his job as a pilot with Alaska Airlines when another car pulled alongside him. The man in the passenger seat of the second car pushed a 45 caliber automatic handgun out the window and shot Bob Vile five times. Three of the bullets hit Vile, but he lived to tell detectives he was sure his brother-in-law, Neil McKay, had ordered the shooting. Vile gave investigators a good description of the car and the man who leaned out the window to fire the gun. Vile suffered critical wounds, and doctors transferred him to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Nearly a month later, while undergoing surgery to remove bullets from his spine and lungs, Bob Vile died when a blood clot lodged in his lungs. Let me take a short pause from this story and give a shout-out to the sponsor of this podcast. Thank you to the folks at the puzzle game Best Fiends for supporting murder and mystery in The Last Frontier. Best Fiends is a fun mobile puzzle game you can download and play anytime offline. I enjoy playing it for a few minutes when I need to recharge my brain, take a work break, or lately to escape the news. The game consists of levels of challenging puzzles with bright, cute, funny insects who help you battle slugs and complete the assigned tasks. I am currently stalled on level 253, where I am trying to collect mushrooms, flowers, and water in the allotted number of moves. I will defeat this level by tonight. If you haven't played it yet, download Best Fiends and give it a try. We could all stand to escape for a few minutes. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. (music) 
Soon after the shooting, Files' neighbors described an old, mustard-colored Lincoln parked near Files' home on the night of the incident. This description of the car matched the one File gave detectives. A few days after the attack, 18-year-old Tioga Clausen bragged to his friends that he knew something about the shooting of the Alaska Airlines pilot. Police brought Clausen in for questioning, and he admitted he provided the gun used to shoot File. He said he took it from a house where his girlfriend was babysitting. Clausen claimed he had nothing to do with shooting File, but he knew the men involved in the crime. Clausen told detectives his friend, Bob Betts, 19, drove the car while another young man, John Bright, 21, fired the fatal shots. For the verbal promise of a reduced sentence, Bob Betts soon agreed to tell detectives all he knew about the crime. Betts admitted he, John Bright, and 34-year-old Larry Gentry had been hired to murder Bob Thiel. He said Gilbert, Jr. Paoli, 38, the manager and part owner of the Wild Cherry, a strip club in Anchorage, hired them. Betts, Gentry, and Bright had all once worked for Paoli at the club. Betts said Gentry helped them plan the hit on file, and he provided the car as well as a backup gun. Betts agreed to wear a wire to try to get Gentry to incriminate himself. When Gentry realized Betts had recorded the conversation, Gentry admitted his involvement in the crime to the police. Detectives next promised Gentry a deal for a lighter sentence if he wore a wire to record Bright and Paoli. When Gentry approached Bright and Paoli, both men seemed suspicious of him and remained cautious about what they said, but detectives felt they said enough to incriminate themselves. Detectives arrested five men for the shooting of Robert File, but they still did not have Neil McKay, the man they wanted. Once detectives arrested Junior Paoli, he seemed eager to talk in exchange for the promise of leniency in his sentence. He told police that Neil McKay owned the building where he operated his nightclub, the Wild Cherry. He said McKay often visited his club and the two men had gotten to know each other well. According to Paoli, McKay told him his ex-wife caused him trouble, so he took care of her. He said a war buddy planted a bomb in her car and detonated it from half a block away. McKay then told Paoli he was now having tr problems with his ex-brother-in-law and he wanted him to disappear. Paoli said he and McKay talked for two years about arranging Files' murder. McKay thought Paoli had mob connections and could hire pros for the hit. But in the end, Paoli hired young, inexperienced hoods to murder Bob Vile. After Bright shot Vile, Paoli said he called McKay in Hawaii to let him know Vile had been taken care of. He said McKay was happy to hear the news. McKay was less pleased a few days later to learn the shots did not immediately kill Vile, and Vile was still alive. Detectives instructed Paoli to place a call to McKay while they listened to and recorded the conversation. Paoli told McKay he felt scared and was hiding from the Anchorage police. McKay hesitated to say anything and told Paoli to be careful what he said or he would implicate himself. Paoli placed two more calls to McKay, and McKay finally asked him 
if the metal thing had been ground up. What? Polly asked. You mean the car? McKay answered, yeah. Then McKay stunned the detectives when he asked Powley, what about the G-U-N? Junior replied he didn't know anything about the G-U-N. Since the detectives listening to the call knew G-U-N spelled gun, they felt they had enough evidence against McKay to take him into custody. Later the same day, Honolulu police arrested Neil McKay in his penthouse in Waikiki, and authorities held him on a bail of $25 million cash. Prosecutors charged Neil McKay, John Bright, Larry Gentry, and Bob Betts with first-degree murder. Because of his plea agreement, they charged Junior Paoli with attempted murder. Betts and Gentry believed they also made deals with the prosecution for reduced charges in exchange for wearing wires to incriminate the others. Only Paoli and Clausen signed formal agreements with the prosecutors, though, so Gentry and Betts received no leniency. The judge decided each defendant should be tried separately, and Larry Gentry was tried first. His trial occurred in March 1986, and the jury found him guilty of first-degree murder. The judge sentenced Gentry to 40 years in prison, with 15 years suspended. Two weeks after Larry Gentry's trial, Tioga Clausen received a sentence of 18 months in jail for stealing the 45 caliber handgun used to murder Bob Vile. Bob Betts' trial began in August 1986. The jury convicted Betts of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to 50 years in prison. On October 17, 1986, a jury convicted John Bright, the man who pulled the trigger, of first-degree murder, and the judge sentenced him to 99 years in prison. Because of the enormous amount of publicity surrounding Neil McKay's trial, the judge ordered the court proceedings moved from Anchorage to Fairbanks, and the trial began in January 1987. McKay chose the best defense lawyer money could buy, and since they had no direct evidence against McKay, prosecutors knew his case would be hard to prove. Their evidence consisted of only Junior Paoli's word and McKay's suspicious comments on the taped phone conversation. Junior Paoli was not an upstanding citizen, and McKay's attorney easily discredited him. The judge weakened the case against McKay by not allowing Paoli to testify that McKay had once told him he'd had his wife murdered. The judge also ruled out some of the recorded conversations between Powley and McKay and did not allow documentation of the court battle between McKay and File into evidence. The judge did allow the tape on which McKay asked Powley what he did with the G-U-N. To explain away this comment, though, McKay's attorney argued McKay was only playing along with Powley because he believed Powley was trying to extort money from him by threatening to frame him with Files murder. Making this bizarre case even stranger, the judge abruptly declared a mistrial three months into the trial and three days after jurors had started their deliberations. 
Somehow, a thick file of material on McKay relating to his ex-wife's murder ended up in the jury room. The file, intended for the judge as background information on the case, instead landed in the hands of jurors. The information confused the jurors because they did not remember the prosecution discussing or admitting any of it into evidence. When it became clear several of the jurors had read at least part of the file, the judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial. The court retried McKay in November, and on February 7, 1988, the jury found him not guilty. Junior Paoli received only an 18-year prison sentence as a reward for his assistance in secretly recording and testifying against McKay and the other defendants. On September 24, 1994, Neil McKay was found dead in his condominium at the Ilikai on Waikiki. He died of natural causes and had been dead for several days when his body was discovered. As an interesting side note to this story, ghost hunters believe Muriel Files' spirit haunts the Snow City Cafe in downtown Anchorage, where her travel agency was once located and near the spot where she died. Here's my friend Marianne Paul to tell you where to go to hear more about Muriel's ghost. Hi, this is Marianne Paul from the podcast Real Ghost Chatter. You just heard Robin's story about the horrible murder of Muriel File. Now hop over to my podcast, where Robin and I will discuss the ghost of Muriel. You can find me at anchor.fm forward slash m-a-r-y-a-n-n-p-o-l-l. Hope to see you there. Thank you, Marianne. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Be sure to check out the show notes for sources and other information. And I will be back soon with another episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.